Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. Lord, I know my own heart, so I have a sense of the hearts of my brothers and sisters in here. And so I know we need to hear your word. We need you to speak to us, to teach us, to encourage us, refresh us, challenge us, Lord. Whatever it is, have your way with us from your word, we ask this day. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of your way and that you would teach us for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, I absolutely love sitting around and listening to other Christians share their testimony. Uh, By that I mean as they share their story about what God has done in their life in bringing them to saving faith. It's such a joy to just hear how God takes rebels and, and, and makes them into worshipers, right? So often people will walk you through what their life was like before Christ. Uh, and they'll, 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 they'll typically share some of the things that God was doing in their lives to, to draw them to Himself. And certainly in that we just get to have the gospel rehearsed for us, which is always a joy, right? As they share how they came to grips with their own sin and and, and how they came to finally trust wholeheartedly in, in Christ. And then more often than not, they'll share about their new reality, what life looks like for them 
now, which is obviously different. When you think about a Christian testimony, there's two things that stand out to me, and one is that they're all different, right? Because we're all very different people. We all grew up in different homes. We all had different pasts. And so everybody has a different story. And yet, when you think of a Christian testimony, they are also all the same, aren't they? Because we all had a Christless past. And in God's kindness, God drew us to Himself, changed our lives from the inside out, gave us a new reality. And our, and our text that we get to look at this morning leans in on four things that are true of every single person that's come to faith in Christ. Four things that could be a part of every single Christian's testimony. So this is a fun message. This is a message of encouragement. It is a message of hope. It is a joyful text. To that end, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 2. We're going to be looking at part of the passage that was read for us, and I'm going to begin by rereading verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having come this far in chapter 2, we've had quite a lot of talk about what we once were, right? Before coming to saving faith, Paul's already walked us through the reality that every single one of us were dead spiritually, and that's very important. By that, it's clear that we could not have any movement to God on our, on our own. Every single one of us, he said, were enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And we're by nature children of God, or by nature under the wrath of God, children of wrath. But God, he said, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He did so by sending his son to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. He went to the cross to bear the punishment we deserved to bear. He made us alive by granting us the very faith to believe, the faith to recognize our desperate plight and to cry out to Jesus to save us, whereby we were saved from the wrath we deserved and became the very workmanship of Christ, new creations in Christ, created in Christ for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we could live a new and different life for His glory. And let me just pause there. Because you might be here this morning and you've not yet trusted in Christ, and I would just want to say this reality stands available for you. But you must repent of your sin, that is to turn from your sin, trust in Christ, and follow Him. So I'd plead with you, if you're outside of Christ, to look to Jesus today. Well, Paul goes on in chapter 2 to describe even more about our past. He says for Gentile believers, which is I think probably every one of us in the room here, he says that at one point we were sort of mocked as the uncircumcision by the circumcision. He says we were completely separated from the Jewish Messiah. We were alienated, key word, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and we were strangers 
to the covenants of promise, having no hope precisely because we were without God in the world. But through Christ, those of us who were so far off have been brought near. Right? Through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, He procured peace with God for us and peace with one another. For through Jesus, verse 18, where we ended last week, says that through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile alike, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And in verses 19 through 22, our text that we're focusing on today, Paul goes on to give four glorious truths about our Christian present. He says, therefore, picking up on verses 11 to 18, therefore, if you're in Christ, you're no longer a stranger or an alien. And in this section, Paul's wrapping up his line of argument that he's been walking through since verse 11. Our text this morning is really the climax of this section. Earlier, he said we were strangers to the covenants of promise. And here he says, in Christ, that's no longer true. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul tells us that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Now, last week we looked about how the entire Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus how it was all looking ahead. It was all pointing to Him. And so for those in Christ, all of those glorious promises that were all pointing to Jesus are now ours. We're no longer strangers to them. They belong to us in Christ. What's more, in verse 12, we're told to remember that before Christ, we were alienated from citizenship in the commonwealth of Israel. And this was of vital importance because Israel was God's chosen people. And so to be alienated from Israel was to be alienated from the very blessings of God. But, but now, praise God, that's all changed. Now, Paul tells us, we're no longer alienated, no longer aliens. But in fact, we are citizens. Citizens with the saints. And Paul's wording here is important. Don't miss that he says that we're citizens with the saints. He doesn't say we're citizens of the commonwealth of Israel, what you might have expected, how he's pivoting off of it, right? We're moving a step forward in salvation history. He doesn't say that we're citizens with the Jews. In the previous section, Paul was careful not to teach that Gentile believers are somehow just added to Israel, but that he takes some Jews and some Gentiles and brings them together into one new man, one new humanity by nature of their faith in Christ. Don't forget that dividing wall of hostility that we talked about was torn down through Jesus' death on the cross. In and through Jesus' first coming, we know from the Gospels that His kingdom broke in in a new and profound way. And Paul here is saying that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but our new reality as Christians is that we are citizens, citizens of God's own kingdom. We're citizens along with the saints, which is a term Paul uses consistently for the church. And this is a glorious reality. Christians are no longer homeless. We're not second-class citizens in somebody else's homeland. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. For Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And we'll come back to that last part in a bit. But for now, this is a glorious present reality for every believer in the room. And there's a number of implications for this citizenship for us. I mean, think about it. As Christians, we're all dual citizens, aren't we? We're all citizens of an earthly country. For most of us, we're American citizens, but we are also citizens of the kingdom of God. And it's, and it's that kingdom that takes priority. Now, of course, as Christians, we want to be good citizens of whatever country we live in. I think that's part of being a Christian. We're called to be salt and light. We should make wherever we live a better place because we're there as God uses His people as both a preservative salt and also light to shine the light of the gospel everywhere we go. We also know that as citizens of the kingdom of God, it is this kingdom, the kingdom of God, that takes priority. And thus, if we ever find that our earthly kingdom calls us, demands us to go against the kingdom of God, we choose God's kingdom 100% of the time. Which means that there is time, and we've certainly seen this throughout the history of the church, there is time for Christians to commit civil disobedience, if it were to ever come down to that. There's a place, like we talked about last week, for pointing to the culture and calling it out for its ungodliness. And so, church, we need to pray for one another. We need to pray that as we live as dual citizens, recognizing the pressures that we have, we want to pray for one another that we would be faithful. In fact, look around the room. This is one of the areas where the local church is so important as we're able to be an encouragement to one another, to hold each other accountable, to, to walk side by side as each one of us try to live faithfully in our dual citizenship. So that's one very important new reality. But Paul doesn't stop there. He uses two more metaphors to describe our present reality. Next up, he says that we are members of God's own family. And we see this metaphor in the last part of verse 19, where he says that we are members of the household of God, or you could say we're family members of God. Now, this is a beautiful reality. Uh, this is one you need to take time and soak on and let this sink in. Recall back in chapter 1 that Paul said that Christians have been predestined to adoption as sons. Remember, our past reality was enmity with God, children of wrath. Our present reality is adopted children. When we covered this back in chapter 1, I said that Paul was borrowing from imagery that would have been really well understood in the Greco-Roman world as he's, as he's painting this picture of our new reality. See, under Roman law, which all of Paul's readers would have been quite familiar with, an adopted child acquired all of the legal rights of a natural-born child, and he couldn't lose them. He, he was released from the control of his 
earthly father. And he would receive his adopting father's name and status in that new family. So consider this. We're members of God's family, which means you, if you're in Christ, are a beloved child of God. Thus, I mean, do the math, and Paul talks about this, we're heirs. Heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. We'll reign with Christ in the new heaven and new earth. I mean, this is glorious. As adopted children, we have God as our Father. We have new brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's so many implications of this reality that we could get into, but I want to lean in on one very important implication for a bit. Throughout the New Testament, we see this emphasis on the love believers are to have for one another, right? Yes, Paul says in Galatians 6 that we're to do good to all people, but he says especially the household of God. There's this special love that we are to have for one another, what we often refer to as the love of the brethren. And you see this in a very, very foundational way in, in John 13. Uh, Jesus is in the upper room. He's getting his disciples ready for his departure, and he says, a new commandment I'm giving you, that you love one another. And, and, and he says, it's, it's by this, by our love for one another, that all people will know you're my disciples. I think we would often put a lot of other stuff in there when we think of a by this. You know, you have your devotions every day, or you do these things, and it's by that people. No, he says it's by your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ that all people will know you're my disciples. So that's obviously fundamental to who we are as Christians. So fundamental, in fact, that John, who was in that room when Jesus was teaching, goes on to use this as a vital test of faith to help us to test whether or not we're actually even Christians. He says in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we've crossed over from death to life. Think about that language. We know we've crossed from death to life because we love the brothers. He says the one who does not love, implied as the brothers, abides in death. Or to use Paul's language from Ephesians 2, the one who doesn't love the brothers is still dead in their trespasses and sins. So, so, so this is important, isn't it? This is, this is vital. This is a change that happens in every single person who has crossed over from death over to life. Or put differently, John's saying this is a telltale mark of whether or not someone has been born of God. And we can understand why this is so, can't we? When we think about Paul and his teaching here in Ephesians, our present reality is we are part of God's household. We are now, as Christians, adopted children of God, and we know that God has gone to such great lengths to make us such, right? He crushed His Son in our place to accomplish this. So, so when I understand, when I come to grips with the reality that God loves His children with a particularly special love, and I, and, and I consider the great lengths to which He has gone to in order to bring us all into His family, that's a game changer. We talk about how 
doctrine actually affects what we do, right? This is an area where I think the doctrine of limited atonement or possibly better described as particular atonement is so helpful. When I understand, when I fully grasp that God loves His elect, God loves His children so much that He sent His Son to die for them, then how can I not love them? How could I possibly be hateful toward those Jesus died for? How could I even be indifferent to those that God has gone to such great lengths to make His own? What would that say about my love for God? I love you, but I could care less about your kids. Try telling that to any parent in the room and see how seriously they take your statement, I love you. I love you, but your kids annoy the fire out of me. Get them away. Don't want anything to do with them. Now, now the point is if we truly love God, if we're truly part of His family, we love those that He has adopted. And brothers and sisters, again, this all starts right here. In 1 John 3, again, John says, if anyone has the world's goods, and that's all of us, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Now, just think about that comment. He sees his brother in need. This was written before the internet. These people were not thinking about the global church when he talks about seeing them. They're thinking about their local church, those that they did life with, those who they saw on a regular basis. And so we could paraphrase, for all who have the world's goods and see your fellow church member in need, but close your heart against him. John says, how does the love of God abide in you? And the implied answer there is, it, it, it doesn't. See, this love is more than an emotional feeling. This love is very practical. For in the very next verse, he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In other words, don't just give lip service to this idea of love of the brethren. Do it live it out. And this fits Ephesians 2 so well, doesn't it? For our new reality is we are no longer strangers and aliens. We're no longer homeless. We're adopted kids, adopted into God's own family, and therefore we love God and we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Next and last metaphor. Now, having already said that our new reality is that we're citizens in the kingdom of God, and members of God's own household, he now tells us, in effect, that we are all living stones in God's new temple. Look at verses 20 through 22. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so here the metaphor of God's household naturally gives way to the metaphor of the temple. And we're told that this new temple is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, with Jesus being the cornerstone and Christians 
as living stones being built up into this dwelling place for God. There's a lot of theology there. Let's unpack some of the points. First, he begins with the foundation. He says that there are two groups who serve as a foundational role, who serve in a foundational role in the beginning of the church or the beginning of this new temple. First, there's the apostles, and this one's really no surprise, right? Even before Jesus' death in Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And of course, Peter is one of the apostles. And while this word apostle can at a few points in the New Testament simply mean messenger, it's most consistently used in its technical form as those that Jesus has called out as apostles. So that's the twelve, plus you could say Matthias, that Jesus used the early church to choose him to replace Judas, and then James, the half-brother of Jesus, is called an apostle, and then Paul, who we know is specifically called out by Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul calls himself the least or last of the apostles, depending on how you translate that word. I think last is perhaps best there. These men served in a very foundational role in the starting of the church, as they not only preached the gospel to the ends of the earth, but remember, just think about how they're used in Acts and, and, and what we see in the New Testament. They, they planted churches. They appointed elders in these churches to get these churches ready for them to be gone. They instructed these churches with all of their apostolic authority, and they wrote the New Testament, which is the inspired Word of Christ once for all delivered to saints. So we're still, still standing on this foundation, aren't we? So they served a very critical, indeed foundational time in the church as the church was being birthed and growing and spreading from Jerusalem to all Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And virtually everyone agrees, with the exception of a small minority within some charismatic circles, that this spiritual gift of apostle, right, apostle shows up on your spiritual gifts list, that this spiritual gift of apostle died off when these men died and their foundational role was complete. Now, the second group that Paul says played a foundational role was the New Testament prophets, I say New Testament prophets because this makes the most sense of what Paul's doing here in the text. If he was referring to Old Testament prophets, he would have almost certainly referred to them before the apostles and would have called, pointed out that they were forerunners of the church and that they looked ahead to the church. But here he lists them after the apostles, just like he does in chapter 3, verse 4, and again in chapter 4, verse 11. So who are these people? Well, this was a separate group from the apostles who again played a foundational role in the beginning of Christ's church as they were at times used as the mouthpiece for the Lord at a time before the church had the New Testament. And so similar to the Old Testament prophets, these were those who would tell the church, thus says the Lord, when it came to some important issues in the church. Because again, remember, the church didn't have the New Testament yet. And I would argue that just like the Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophecy was not mixed with error, as some argue today, but 
they spoke direct messages from God in a manner that was authoritative and true during this foundational period. And I and many others believe that this is actually an important text that helps us understand why then the gift of prophecy, like the gift of apostle, died out once the foundation was laid. I think Tom Schreiner says it well in his book on spiritual gifts. He says, quote, Now, if such authoritative apostles no longer exist today, and if prophets spoke infallible words like the apostles, and if the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, then there are good grounds to conclude that the gift of prophecy has ceased as well. Since prophecy is defined as speaking the infallible word of God, and since the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, there are no longer prophets today since the foundation of the church has been laid. The sole and final authority of Scripture is in fact threatened if so-called prophets today give revelations which have the same authority as Scripture, end quote. So in the providence of God, at this crucial moment in salvation history, the beginning of Christ's church, the beginning of this new temple, God used these two groups, the apostles and the prophets, to lay the very foundation that this new temple would be built on. And Paul continues, because it's not just the apostles and prophets that are foundational here, but Christ Himself is the cornerstone. And this analogy would have been immediately understood by his original readers, but I think it is a touch more difficult to us because we don't really build off of a cornerstone. Sometimes when you see them, they're there on a building, but really just for symbolic purposes now. But in the first century, the cornerstone would have been the most important building block of the entire building. Today, if we're going to build a large building, if we were going to build a, a big church or a temple of some kind, we'd use large pylons that we, would, that we would drill all the way down to the bedrock in order to support the weight, and you'd have you know, long metal or wooden beams to kind of set your perimeter, and then you'd build up off of all of that. But in the first century, everything pivoted off of the cornerstone, which meant that stone had to be cut absolutely perfectly, no flaws in it at all. It was the most tedious to make because they would just cut on it until it was perfect, and thus it was the most expensive stone in the whole building. And the, the, the shape of this stone and the way that it was laid out would then set the parameters for the entire building as they took that stone and they built both up and out, directionally and everything, this stone constrained the shape of the entire building. And thus the imagery for Christ as cornerstone is absolutely perfect, isn't it? Because Jesus defines the dimensions of the church or the new temple. There is nothing about the church that should not be defined by Jesus, for He's the very cornerstone. So our preaching better be all about Jesus. Our singing is all about Jesus. Our fellowship is all about Jesus. Our ecclesiology is all about Jesus. The way we live is all about Jesus. And we could keep going, right? There's not one piece of the church that is not judged or evaluated by the standard of Jesus. And to the degree that it does not fit those parameters or to the degree that it's not all about Him, it should be removed from this structure because, again, the cornerstone Christ constrains the entire shape of the building, the new temple. 
So this new temple has a solid foundation and a perfect cornerstone. And Paul goes on to say that we, Christians, are being built together off of those foundational things into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is analogous with what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 when he says that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone. Don't miss the Trinitarian nature of this new temple. In verse 22, Paul says that it's in Him, that's Christ, that you are being built together into a dwelling place for God, it's God the Father, by the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the second time he's done that in this section, showing us how Trinitarian everything we do, we, we, we've got to think in those categories. And this whole passage is magnificent when we think about our present existence as Christians. We as the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone, think about this, we now make up the temple of God. And this is glorious to consider because throughout the Old Testament, the temple was the unique place where God met with His people, right? Throughout the Old Testament, tabernacle, then giving way to the temple, it's the unique place God met with His people. It was the place where His people came and worshiped. It was the place where sacrifice was made. It was the center of their meeting with God. And when we come to the New Testament, there's not one building that's ever shown to be the fulfillment of that, right? You can build a glorious church building or whatever, and that will never be the temple, a useful tool to worship, not having to have props and all of that, but it's not the temple. This theme of temple is actually fulfilled in three very important ways, actually three now and a fourth later. First, it's most importantly fulfilled in Christ, isn't it? I mean, just think about it, right? Jesus walks in in John chapter 2, and he, and, he, and he cleanses the temple, turns over the money changers, you know, drives out the animals and all, and all of that, and so the Jewish leaders are infuriated with Jesus, and they're like, what authority do you have to do that? What, what sign do you give us that you can do that? Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Tear this temple down, and in three days... I'll raise it up again. Now, they had no idea what he was talking about, but right there he was talking about his death and resurrection. And he was showing us that he is the very fulfillment of the temple. He becomes the unique place where God meets with his people. He becomes the one who is both priest and sacrifice. He's the center of our worship. So the temple is fulfilled in Christ. A second way that we see this temple theme fulfilled in the New Testament, it's less prominent than the others, but, but, but it's there nonetheless, and, it, and it's important, is in a text like 1 Corinthians 6, where we see that individual Christians at one level can be thought of as the very temple of God, right? He says, your body's a temple, and that's so often misunderstood, right? You know, we should work out and eat healthy and all. No, no the point that he's getting at there is there's something that's holy. There's something that's changed because the Spirit of God dwells within you, okay? So that's another 
way that it's fulfilled. But far more commonly, probably the most common thing we see in the New Testament, and certainly what Paul's doing here, is this third and very important way that we see this theme of the temple fulfilled is in the church. In the church, we, the church, become the fulfillment of the temple, the great meeting place between God and human beings. And we know that's true, right? Others come into contact with, with God here, right? Isn't that one of the reasons we want to invite our friends to church? Yeah, we can share the gospel with them, but we know something unique, something important, something wonderful happens when we, when we gather together. This is where we mediate the truth of God to others as we center our time around the very Word of God. We could go on and on here, but as we're running short on time, I want, I want to be clear. There is something very special about when we gather together. We should delight in this. Church, we must prioritize this. Gathering together in person is such an important thing in the New Testament, for this doesn't work if we're not gathering this whole idea of the temple and God uniquely meeting with His people. So I want to I end on thinking about one sort of thing that flows from this. While our present reality, and it is a reality that is immensely glorious, what we've been talking about, while, while that is our present reality, we must keep in mind that there's also a not yet aspect to this new temple that is at least implied here in Ephesians 2 as he says we are being not not we've already been we're being so there's this work in progress we're being built into a new temple there's a degree that we're already the new temple and there's a degree that we're not yet what we will be and see this idea of the temple reaches its ultimate fulfillment when we come into the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation 21, an angel measures. You ever find that section interesting, right? It's like, hey, angel, bust out the tape measure. Go, go measure the new Jerusalem. And he's like, okay, you know, height, width, length. And, and you read it and you sort of put two and two together. You're like, that's eh, interesting. The new heaven and new earth is a cube. I mean, it's sort of bizarre, but it's, it's there. And if you ever sort of think, man, why, why the seemingly insignificant detail? Well, it's because it's not an insignificant detail. Because the only other cube in the entire Bible is the Holy of Holies. It is the place where God dwells, right? And so this is absolutely glorious. When all of this is fulfilled, John is telling us in Revelation 21, we will live forever and ever and ever in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God. So, yes, what we have is an amazing Stunning, really, when you think about these analogies, present reality as Christians. But I think where this text leaves us is just wait. Because we ain't seen nothing yet. For the best for the Christian is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that we can gather. We thank you even as we turn our attention to take the Lord's Supper together. We pray that you would use this picture that you've given us to further remind us what Christ has done and where all of this is going by your grace for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.